Awesome. And Gavin, I'm not sure if you had things that you want to talk about as well. Um, no, that sounds fantastic. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I wrote down just some brief notes I wanted to like touch on tonight, and one of them was about pity. So, you know, this sounds fantastic. Okay. Sweet. All right. The the first thing that we can talk about is is that many places within the suttas, pity sukha, is a term that's just put together. It's almost like that pity and sukha. Um, or let us say that when you add pity and the, the word pity and the word sukha together, it has almost a, an oxymoronic way of combining the two. Um, one of the microphones is really noisy. I think Tyler. Uh, I, was probably, I was taking notes while we were talking. OK, yeah. All right. So um, pity and sukha are almost always listed together. That in fact, one of the places where they're put together is in the seven factors of enlightenment, the Sambo Jhana, where it's uh, talked about as Piti Sukha. And that um, in uh, the various places like Sutta number 119, where they're actually giving technical definitions and examples of first Jhana, they divide the two up as two distinct individual items that are two of five so that there are actually five items in the first jhana and that the jhana factors have to be collected together which kind of means that we need to develop each one of these things as skills and then bring them together as a package group you can see that in music in the sense that learning to play chords and learning to play scales will be exactly what the piano student needs to do in order to learn to play arpeggios and uh, let us say <laughs> church music which is almost always just chords okay so um we we want to develop pity and sukha as basic skills that's the first point and that they're they're separate and the next point that we can make is is that both pity and sukha are individual items on these uh the 16 steps of anapanasati that pity is step five and sukha is step six now, i want to make sure that we understand that when i'm talking about steps here i'm not talking about chronological order that you take the first step and then the second step but this is much more like a waltz to where or your feet are going scale, to go. Maybe. Yeah, they're all they're all over the place. Or like like you would say that you wouldn't teach a piano student by saying, "Okay, you play the the note C, and you go home and you practice C for two weeks, and come back and we'll get a second lesson, and then we'll do note D." No. We don't do it that way, but in fact, right from the very beginning, we need to know the D and the C and to be able to work together with them. OK, so this is the way that we look at it is, is that uh, Sukha and Piti are just two different notes on the scale, but we need to master both of them individually and then master them uh, together. Now, mastering the note C on the piano is easy. All you have to do is just hit the key. Getting a C on a tuba is not so easy. Getting a C on a violin is downright difficult for the beginning student. 
because they've got no frets. I mean, getting a C on a guitar is easy enough, but getting a C on a violin means that you've really got to play with your fingers to get it. Okay, so this is the point that we actually do have to develop sukha. And then we develop pity, and then we go back to sukha again. That it's almost like that we go up and then we reach a certain point and we'll call that sukha, and then we peak up at the top and that's uh, pity, and then we come back down to sukha. This is the part that makes it a little bit difficult to understand, but we practice sukha, sukha, uh, sukha first, and then that develops pity, and then we take on pity completely as our object until it melts back into sukha. Yes, Gavin, you've got a question. I do. Um, could you say pity is satisfaction of mind and sukha is satisfaction of body? And no, and I'll, no, and I'll tell you why in just a moment, okay? That basically we can look at it like this, that, that sukha has a very clear definition. And it's got constituent components as part of the definitions. So sukha itself has the quality of safety, has the quality of security. It has the quality of comfort. And it has the quality of, above all, satisfaction. But satisfaction can't be had when you're uncomfortable. That if you're uncomfortable, you're not satisfied. That's almost definitional. <laughs> and if you're in a state of terror, you're not satisfied. If you're afraid, you're not satisfied. So by definition, coming out of fear into a state of safety and security right in this very moment and comfort is what brings on the feeling of satisfaction. Well, guess what? Satisfaction is exactly opposite to being dissatisfied or being uh, 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 non-satisfaction, which is actually dukkha. So sukha is actually a state of mind that is free from dukkha. It's, it's temporary, but it does arise and it does exist and that we do that on a regular basis. And if we didn't in do it on a regular basis, then we would all give ourselves aneurysms and heart attacks and uh, uh, brain tumors and uh, um, uh, strokes and all kinds of stuff that we can have because we never give ourselves a chance to relax. That that's in fact what happens with a race car engine. You know that, that if you put together an engine that's ready to do a real race like the Indy 500, that at the end of that race, that engine is completely worn out. No good at all because you've been racing it just solid, just as hard as it would go for 500 miles to win that race. And then they get, and then the engine is just completely destroyed. They would never put a, an engine in a second Indianapolis 500 race after it had already been in one race. Can you imagine somebody says, well, wow, we just run that race with this car. Let's put this same car without doing anything to it back into another race. <laughs> no, it may not even finish the second race. Well, this is what people do to themselves. We get into a state of race mode 
and, and it's hard to get out of it. And we never give ourselves a chance to relax and to rest and to be satisfied with the progress that we've made. So this is what sukha is, and it is a skill to be developed. That in fact, in the Anapanasati Sutta, it talks about sukha in the sense of thus one trains oneself. Mindfully with sati, we breathe in long, training in sukha. And then mindfully, we train ourselves to breathe out long while training sukha. So it's actually a training process that we're doing. You can you can do it in the sense of as I breathe in, how good can I feel? As I breathe out, don't I feel safe? As I breathe in, don't I feel secure? As I breathe out, don't I feel so comfortable? And so this is the way of practicing and training the mind to become a, in a state of sukha. And you could say then that there, the component of it is, is that we feel sukha. By having thoughts of sukha, it is actually a physical state of well-being. We actually feel comfortable, safe, secure, and relaxed, as opposed to uptight, stressed out, worried, you see. Okay, so this is the state of sukha, which is exactly opposite of dukkha, is to get ourselves into a state of safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction. Well, now, the interesting thing about Western meditation, especially with these long sittings and meditation, is, is that the Western body, not sit, used to sitting on the floor, will go into a state of discomfort fairly easily, fairly quickly. And then the rest of the meditation session is practiced while you're in a state of discomfort. And that's not what the Buddha teaches at all. How can you be in a state of comfortable satisfaction when your legs hurt? Yeah, I sit on the couch pretty much every time. <laughs> okay, so here's where we here's where we have to really look at closely what the Buddha is teaching, rather than taking it the way that most Westerners practice it. Okay, that we have to get ourselves by talking ourselves into it. That if we can have thoughts of comfort thoughts of safety, thoughts of security, thoughts of lightness, then we will begin to feel safe and secure and comfortable and light and satisfied. Okay, so this is actually the Eightfold Noble Path that we're practicing. The first three items on the list is sati to wake up and to pay attention to what the body and the mind are doing. Okay, to be here now, that would be a way. The word mindfulness that is used to, to translate sati misses much of the power. We have the wrong idea that, in fact, uh, uh, mindfulness is a fairly weak word. And we want a very, very strong understanding and definition of sati. Wouldn't almost be like the Zen definition of like to recognize who you to not identify with this body, to wake up to that sense, to that wide awake sense? Yes, to wake up completely. And that sati then is to wake up 
You've heard the expression, surely, wake up and smell the coffee. This is very close to what we're talking about, because when you smell the coffee, it's going to have a deep aroma. You're going to have to take in an in-breath to receive it. And so we can think of to wake up and smell life. And coffee is just one example of the smell of life. But we can wake up and take a deep breath and experience that air. What's in the air that we're breathing? What kind does it smell dog? Does it does it smell <laughs> dirty? Does it smell pure? What does the the uh, uh, the air that we're breathing smell like? And so we need to begin to start watching for that, which is part of being here now. All right. So the the mindfulness is to wake up and really see what's going on, including looking at the kind of thoughts that we have and the kind of feelings that we have in the body, knowing that we're going to take the right effort then to make some improvements, to make some adjustments. It's almost like um, any, uh, let us say, any business that has to do with care, like a dentist office or a doctor's office, a long-term care facility, a rest home, a hospital, all of these places have the quality that they go through regular inspection, often by an outside agency. Okay, they have to have an inspection. This is the way that we're doing it. We're going to be a, uh, a a mental health facility and we have to go through inspection, regular inspection. And one of the qualities of the inspection is you get a list back of stuff that needs to be fixed. And then you fix those things, right? That's the whole point of the inspection is to make sure that everything is great. And yet here we are human beings. We don't do that inspection. We don't check things out. We just let things rot and continue on, not recognizing that we're running a pretty poor facility here. And so the waking up then is to wake up and do an inspection, do an investigation, check out how do we feel? How is my breathing? What kind of thoughts do I have? What kind of emotions? Do I feel tightness in the belly? Do I feel tension in the chest? Do I have neck? Uh, tensions, any and all of that kind of stuff is actually part of the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. In other words, what is it are we going to be paying attention to? We're going to pay attention to the body. We're going to pay attention to the mind. We're going to pay attention to the feelings. And we're also going to be paying attention to the crap that we let into the mind, the objects of the mind. Okay, so these are the four foundations of mindfulness. And we're going to start paying attention to them. And with that paying attention, when we see something that needs tweaking, we're going to tweak it right then. It's almost like we're going around in that hospital inspection, and every time the hospital inspector finds something, we make a change and we fix it right then and there, so that by the end of the examination, the hospital is at 100%. Yes, yes, uh, Tyler, go ahead. Yes, I had a question about what you're saying now and how that relates to like the 16 stages of uh, Anapanasati. And so what you said earlier was, you know, it's it's actually not like a linear stages like Maybe that's easier for an instruction. That's maybe why he described it that way, but like that's not like how it actually works. So I think exactly. to like rephrase what I think you're saying now, it's like these 16 stages, they're kind of opportunistic. So like when you're doing your your checkup on your facility, right? Like you're gonna be jumping between these stages and you might find a, a certain emotion arising. And like 
there are other there are tons of other things happening in your body and in your mind at the same time but like this is an opportunity to fix that squeaky wheel right so you can kind of mm -hmm. like hone in on that and go in zero into that stage and like do what you got to do there as described in, in the stages of Anapanasati and then you kind of like zoom back out and you're kind of will jump between maybe another stage at that point or, or maybe not zoom out so much as just zoom again on and on <laughs> because he... <laughs> okay, yeah. yes captain oh i i just said for fun I, which kind of uh ties into something i've been thinking about is like the wheel or duka which means like the ill-fitted axle or something along those lines the word is samsara i think that you're looking mm. for the, the wheel okay yeah well, so like in terms of reducing how much that wheel is shifting in and out of alignment versus just being perfectly locked on and actually continuing. there's another way of looking at that wheel and that is is that the wheel is all over the place in the sense that the way that i would express it sometimes you feel like a nut sometimes you don't sometimes you're on top of the world sometimes you're in the gutter sometimes you um, um are okay and sometimes you're you're not okay this is what we mean by the cycles and that when we're on any particular part of the cycle we have the the delusion that there we are and things are not going to change okay um the idea when when they advertise on television or the news brass says that the stock market has just crashed the mentality of most of the people who have uh, who are listening is oh no the stock market has crashed it's going to crash and stay crashed forever no it's going to go back up tomorrow it's going to go up and down and up and down and up and down and if you care about the stock market then you go up and down and up and down with it Okay, so instead of instead of being like up and down, up and down, right view is like, hey, now I'm just climbing this. <laughs> I'm the right. Well, actually, the right view. The the first kind of right view, though, is to see that cycle. Right. Or maybe not even the first. The, the actually the first one would be to see where you are on that cycle to begin to look at what's going on. But then later, as you keep doing that and seeing where you are on the cycle, you can begin to see. Wait a minute, there's a cycle here. <laughs> I'm beginning to put, make that connection, and then we can draw out of the cycle and see the cycle going around, and then we are not the cycle. You see before. And you've also heard the quality that was right. So you've also heard that we're a crowd, that we're not unified. Well, this is, means that uh, that when we're on the cycle, that we're this when we're there, 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 and we don't even see that we that there is no such thing as a fixed personality that you change on you know that I'm I'm not the same person all day long. I'm at least 10 or 15 different people. <laughs> sometimes I'll slap the one. puppy and sometimes I'll pick up the puppy and hug it. You know, that's just how we are. We're not the same. We just keep changing over and over. And so beginning to see not just the cycle itself, but to see where we are on the cycle and how we feel about it because the feelings we can change this is what the right 
effort is, is that you can see where you are on that cycle and change it. And the first change that we're going to make is getting the mind out of dukkha into sukha. That's the first thing. Well, that's, a, a, let us say, a, um, uh, a milestone or a goal to get is to be able to, and everyone can do this in their first actual practice of meditation. They can do it at least once. When Gawanka says, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. We can start again. We can come out of that dukkha and come back to watch the breath and to pay attention to it and bring ourselves back into a state of uh, safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction. And we want to practice that so that we begin to add that as part of our cycle. And then let it begin to take over the cycle. So we have three items now that's important for us to recognize. We have sati to wake up to number two, to do the investigation, to see where we are on that cycle. And number three, the effort that it takes to change that cycle right here, right now. In other words, we come out of our dukkha and come into a state of sukha. We can do that with language like, hey, there are no alligators on the floor. I, I can be okay. I can be satisfied or I can be uh, at a state of peace. In other words, that email that I'm about to write to my boss is not going to bite me. It's not going to kill me. And yet we think of things as dangerous because things were dangerous when we were a little kid. The example that I use is a two-year-old girl who could barely stand and walk and a big puppy jumps up on her and knocks her down. And she remembers that dog and that event, and that event then will uh, influence every relationship that she has with the dog for the rest of her life, that she's afraid of them. And she doesn't even recognize that she imprinted that fear of dogs at a time when she was in danger of a dog because she was too young to deal with the dog. Now that the lady is an adult, what we need to do is to get her to stay in the room long enough to bring a new puppy in and let her pup the puppy so that she could get some new information that is okay to be around puppies, that they're not dangerous. Okay, so this is basically now we can take that example and this is the practice of Anapanasati. Yes, it doesn't matter what traumas you had in your life. Recognize that right now, the thought of that is what traumatizes you and you can change that thought that you do not have to look at that new puppy that comes into the mind in this moment and say, oh, terrible. No, we can look at the puppy and say, let me look at it again. You know, puppies are cute. In other words, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid. Work with that first. I don't have to be afraid anymore. Everything is okay. Another one is I don't have to be anxious or uptight or in a hurry. That was mine. I was in a hurry. I was in a hurry my whole life. Trying to be in a hurry, to, I guess, to catch up to all the other kids that were ahead of me. Not recognizing that I was trying to catch up with them because I had already lapped them. <laughs> and now I'm catching up with with them the second time. So in that in that regard, we need to keep putting in that sukha. 
I'm okay. Everything is fine. I am completely relaxed, comfortable, safe, secure, and satisfied with this present moment. And we do that over and over and over again until something new starts to develop. And that thing that's new that starts to develop is what in Pali is called shraddha or confidence. This is also one of the words that is so badly translated that they miss the point. Shraddha is normally translated as faith. Well, guess who has faith? That's something Christians do. Buddhists, we don't do faith. We do examination. We do investigation. We do gladdening of the mind, and then we can see that this is not faith. It's confidence based upon success. So over and over again, we can get ourselves into a state of satisfaction. And by doing it over and over again, we begin to get the idea, I can do this. This is when the pity comes up. The pity is the experience of, I can do this. It's the winner's mentality that actually we're now changing our attitude in a natural kind of way from being the loser to being the victim of all of those unwholesome thoughts to now we're becoming the champion because we can control the thoughts so that the point comes in time when the student gets the, uh, the idea or the opinion or the view that it does not matter how much my mind gets disturbed with hindrances, no matter what the situation is, I can clean that stuff out and come back to see the way that reality is right now. That is so important. Think about it. That the knowledge of no matter how much my mind gets disturbed, I can clean it back out. No matter how dirty it gets, I can give it a bath. And that's the point of stream entry. <laughs> well, that's it, they're very related. They're deeply, deeply related. Then, in fact, I will give you that relationship. So, looking at oh, this, you this give a bath. You know, it's an easy correlation. <laughs> right. Well, you give the mind a bath because we know that we can give it a bath. We know that we can clean the mind, and this step is the first step of the noble path. This is the first step. The Buddha says in, in Sutta number 48 that when the student gets to the point that no matter how obstructed or what obstructions the mind has, he can clean it out and he knows that he can clean it out, then that is a, a real change of attitude because almost all of us are, are victims. We feel victims to the IRS. We feel victims to the police. We feel victims to the society. We feel like a victim to the government. We feel like victim to any bully that comes by. We feel like a victim to any salesman. Okay, and so that's the that's the way that we live our lives. We we were trained to be in a victim state. Now we're developing being a champion. We are a winner now. This is the pity. The pity is the feeling of a champion, the feeling that I can handle this problem. Yes, Tyler. So, so far, pity sounds great. Sounds really wonderful. And I was just curious, because Buddha Dasa, like he said that, it, I may have misread this, but that pity was like the enemy of Vipassana. And I, and I thought I read that, and I may, may have misunderstood it. 
Um, so I, I was wondering if he maybe just didn't understand it correctly or if maybe he was referring to a shadow side of pity, perhaps. Well, what happens here, actually without <laughs> telling the, the audience directly, what he is saying is, is that pity itself, once it's developed, winds up being very energetic. Okay, let me give you several examples of, of this in real life, because it is in fact that pity that we are all seeking and searching for. It's the thrill that we're looking for. Okay, so let's go to a football game. Uh, let us say that it's a championship game of some kind, uh, a World Cup or a bowl or something like this. And uh, one of the star players on one of the teams makes a touchdown. What does he do immediately after that touchdown? What does he do? Celebrates. Celebrates, exactly. He is in a state of pity. He's got it. He knows he's got it. He's the winner. He's the champion. He just made the touchdown. And he might spike the ball, but something else might happen too. And that is everybody on his team will come jump on him to share the pity. And everybody is stomping around like a champion. Guess what? Look at the stands. The people who are in the stands, it depends upon which stands they're in. But uh, the ones who like it, that they're on the, they vote for the side of that team, or this is my team that won. And they're in the stands doing exactly the same thing. They're standing up, they're cheering, they're yelling, they're throwing their hands in the air, and the whole half of the stadium is in a state of pity. For about 20 seconds at best. This is what Vicky Buddha is talking about is, is that pity is a big spark that happens. And then it's over. The question is, is it going to deflate back into nothingness or into dukkha, or, or is it going to properly relax back into the state of sukha? Is it going to relax back into a state of sukha? This is okay. So now we can actually bring some technical stuff into it. And that is, is that in the practice, we're gathering the factors together so that we're completely free from the hindrances. All those obstructions are gone. And we can bring ourselves into that state of sukha, that satisfaction. And then we bring ourselves into that state of pity Pitisuka that adds the equality to safety, security, comfort, and satisfaction. It adds the next ingredient, which is success. You're successful in your meditation. You feel successful at it, that you can do this stuff. Okay, that is the state that the Buddha calls the first step of the noble path that is noble, it is a factor of the path, and it is not held by ordinary people. Why is that? Because ordinary people, the best they can do is have a touchdown and feel uh, pity for a short period of time. But in order to feel pity again, they've got to go do another touchdown. Well, here we are. All, we are our touchdown was just getting ourselves into a good state. I can do that again. 
over and over and over again. In other words, it's a real championship, not one that rots into doubt. Okay, we know that we can do it and we know that we can continue to do it. But this now means that we're gathering the factors together of first jhana. And one of the qualities of first jhana that I haven't mentioned yet, though we've gotten three out of five so far, we've gotten freedom from the hindrances, sukha, and pity. The next two need to be looked at in great detail, and that is, number one, to be able to apply the mind to the wholesome. In fact, we did that to get rid of the hindrances. Apply the mind to the wholesome, and then sustain the mind on the wholesome. And when we say applied and sustained thought, that means that we're having wholesome thoughts. An example of the pity would be, well, I can do this. And it has verbal quality. And we want to sustain that verbal quality over and over and over again until something happens. And what happens is we have one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought because we're able to sustain this first jhana. And so this is the primary skill now that we all of these other skills, the skill of sati, the skill of uh, investigation, the skill of right effort, and now the skill of changing our attitude. Sama Sankapa is that pity to change it from a loser into a winner. And we feel like a winner. And that's the state then of first jhana is being able to sustain that feeling of being a winner that lasts only 10 or 15 seconds at the football team. And look how much work he had to do to get that touchdown. And so the amount of work that he put into it is is a part of why it feels so good is because look how much work it took. This was a big deal. I really did do a really hard thing to do. And so we want to capitalize on that and get the mind into that first jhana and being able to sustain it for a while. But as we sustain it now, the pity begins to grow. And it gets so strong that it begins to overwhelm the thoughts. Because what we're actually doing here is that we are thinking and feeling, and then thinking another wholesome thought and feeling, and thinking and feeling and thinking and feeling and thinking and feeling. Okay, I did a touchdown and then we feel like we did a touchdown and then I do another touchdown thought and then I have another feeling of touchdown thought. Okay, so what happens is, is now the thoughts become secondary and the feeling itself becomes primary. And so we're no longer thinking so much, we're just experiencing how good we feel as the champion of my life right now. This is second jhana. The second jhana is when we are absolutely tied into this pity, this overwhelming good feeling. Now, the point of that is, is that it too gets energetic and by energetic it begins to get weighty or too much and so the second jhana then melts into the third jhana which means that now instead of the thoughts coming back like in first jhana in third jhana we let the sukha melt in uh, the pity melt into pure sukha 
to where that feeling of success is no longer so strong, but what is there is that feeling of complete satisfaction, complete at rest. And then the fourth jhana is even deeper than that. It goes from sukha down to equanimity or a complete balance or a complete kind of resting state. So the point about the sukha is that we build it up and get it really, really big in the first jhana. And then we let it take off in the second jhana and really flower. And then we let that mellow out into just a state of sukha. So the third jhana actually has fewer factors than the first jhana because we're letting go of the applied and sustained thoughts. We don't have to think anymore. We're just experiencing how good we feel. Now, this may take only a few seconds that, in fact, people do go in and out of these jhanas on a natural basis, but the real training has to be done in the first jhana. We learn to control the mind and sustain the mind so that when we go into the higher jhanas, we can sustain those factors also. Rather than like most people do, they'll get into the second jhana. And the first thing that happens when a student, especially brand new, gets into second jhana, he starts to talk to himself about being in second jhana. He says, hey, the mind stopped. But in order to say, hey, the mind stops, the mind starts up again. <laughs> so the question is, can you get the mind to stop? And you can just enjoy how wonderful it is that I got the mind stopped without the mind starting back up again. This is the skill for the second jhana. All right. And you guys can play with this stuff. This is not stuff that's going to happen 10 or 15 years from now. This is stuff that can happen today or tomorrow afternoon for you if you're practicing correctly. Okay. So we're going to go then make first jhana as a basis or a foundation to where we keep talking to ourselves with wholesome thoughts. We keep doing wholesome thoughts, wholesome feelings, wholesome thoughts, wholesome feelings. And then we can begin to put some gaps in those thoughts. We could use that with the breath also. In the sense that as we're breathing in, we are thinking and as we breathe out, we're thinking, but we're thinking now at a very, very low level. This would down be down at the level of, say, a, um, a mantra. So in the beginning of our practice, the mind is all over the place. Imagine that a horse is in a pasture that's got no boundaries, no fences anywhere, and he can just trot around and go anywhere he wants to, including into cesspools, thickets, traps, hunters, and all kinds of dangerous places that that horse can go because he's got no boundaries, just like the human mind. And so the first jhana is like putting the horse into a corral or at least into a fenced pasture so that he could stay safe. Okay, and so we don't let the mind outside of this boundary. We keep it in a safe place, a corral. But then we can take that the horse's the mind of uh, the horse's mind or whatever and put it into a stall. And now there's very little freedom. Okay, the stall then would be taking our wholesome thoughts that are actually quite a small subset of all possible thoughts, because we're only thinking about right here, right now, and how good things are. Okay, and so now we can bring that down to just very few thoughts. 
and the very few thoughts would be like Om Namah Shivaya, or in Northern Thailand, they do Budo, Budo. One of my favorites is Coca-Cola, 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 okay? So this is what happens with the mind is, is that we get it corralled into a small little space. So with like with Budo, boo on the in-breath and do on the out-breath. And at the end of the out-breath, if we don't take a new in-breath, there's no more do, boo to come in. And so we go boo on the in-breath, do on the out-breath, and let it go two, three, four seconds without saying anything or taking another breath in, that second jhana. And then we take another breath and the thoughts start back up again. Okay. And then the next breath, we let it melt a little bit deeper so that now on the out breath, I can go into silence and stay there for three, four, five, six seconds to count of, but we're not counting. We're just resting for five, six, seven seconds. And then we come back into another breath eventually we'll get to the point that we can take a new breath without taking a new thought. And so this is how we actually practice and develop the second jhana. And all the while, we feel so good and so champion because we can actually stop the mind. You can do that. It can stop. But we have to stop it by corralling it. You can't tell that horse on the other side of the pasture to stop and expect it to stop. No, this is a long process of training, of corralling and then uh, um, uh, bringing it down in from a corral to a stall so that we could stop the mind. Yes, Gavin, you got a question. Uh, yeah, it's just about slowing down the mind. Um, this all tracks. Um, the things that seem right to me, but I was just wondering about if you found that you uh, had a reduction in your your calorie intake as you slowed down the mind. Absolutely. Isn't that interesting that normally the normal human mind is the hottest place of the body? In cold weather, it's more important to put on a hat than basically anything else. And that because of fashion, people don't wear hats the way that they used to. And our ears get cold and our head gets cold and whatnot like that because so much heat is being radiated from the head. Yes, that's an important point to remember and to recognize that that's the whole point about when we're thinking hard thinking thoughts and feeling hard feeling feelings. That takes a lot of work, a lot of energy, a lot of effort. And yet most of the time we're not even breathing well, that we've got our breathing shut down while the mind is working really hard. I mean, we've been told to concentrate, haven't we? <laughs> and so what we're doing is by relaxing as well as taking deep breaths, we're actually purifying the body as well as the mind. All of the carbon dioxide keeps going out while the new breathing that we're doing actually helps energize the body. We're taking in a lot of oxygen with no much place to do rather than letting the oxygen, let us say, do some healing rather than some work. And so uh, in this regard, we don't need so much sleep. 
we don't need so much sleep that when we're working really hard, we need to sleep. And if we're tired, we need to sleep. But what happens is, is that as the mind gets more and more clear and more and more pure and we don't have to spend so much time either dealing with our own garbage or taking it out, that the mind becomes even more alert and awake. This is in one of the suttas. It's not in all of the suttas. Uh, it's only occasionally, but the the Buddha talks about being devoted to wakefulness. In our society, one of the things that we talk about to our children and train, go to sleep. You've got to sleep. The reason you got to sleep is kind of, we're going to work the hell out of you tomorrow. <laughs> but when you wake up and you've got no work to do, then you can stay relaxed all day. Then you don't need so much sleep tomorrow night. And we can actually just lay there in bed and just enjoy. I got no place to go and nothing to do. I can just lay here and just enjoy the night. And you begin to find that uh, by practicing Anapanasati correctly, we begin to do things more naturally that happened in the really, really old primitive days that humans slept like dogs. Have you ever seen dogs around? I mean, if you lived with them and recognize that they look like they're just sleeping all the time, they sleep all day, they sleep all night. No, they're sleeping a little bit and then they're awake. That in fact, the dogs you can see when they're laying down, do they, do they have their ears closed or is an ear standing open? If that ear is up, that means that they're awake and they're listening, they're doing their job, which is doing nothing but listening. They're just listening. Okay, so this is a way that we can think of too, that going back to a more natural life means that we can sleep anytime easily and that we're also not sleeping solidly all night long, that we can wake up, wake up at 2, wake up at 2.30, wake up at 4, wake up at 5, just waking up just enough, taking a deep breath and say, wow, it's still nice and I still don't have to get up yet. I could just go back to sleep and just enjoy. But a lot of people, when they wake up in the middle of the night, they wake up in some panic or terror. Or, oh, no, I've got to get back to sleep because I got work to do tomorrow. And so we have some very unwholesome thoughts about sleeping. But the right way to think about sleeping is, is that, yeah, I get all I need. I get all I need. And I still get tired sometimes, but I still get all the sleep that I need. And it's okay to wake up in the night because I don't need so much sleep because I'm not doing much of anything anymore. Okay. And how many societies that you do, you know, which teach people it's okay to be lazy. It's okay to just hang out. It's okay just to enjoy your life. Not one society has that. They're either say, oh, you got to do what this, that, or the other God says to do, or you got to go do this or that, whatever the government says to do, or you got to go do whatever the boss says to do. And we go around doing what we're told to do rather than sitting down and just happily doing nothing. We're not even rebelling. <laughs> we're just not doing it. <laughs> Have you ever uh, experimented with dream yoga or, or waking up in your dreams? Well, yes, that's the whole point, really, is just um, 
there's there's several things to do as a practice. One is to wake up enough to recognize that this is a dream. A little bit better way of waking up or a little more strongly waking up is, oh, I'm in a dream. Let's see what I can do with it. And we start to modify the dream. And then the third or the strongest way is to wake up is, wow, I was dreaming and I'm not now. I'm awake and I like being awake, even though it's two thirty in the morning. I'm still that's OK. It's great to wake up, OK, to wake up and recognize that, yes, I was dreaming. So that's a way of, of looking at it. Yes, and we can train ourselves to each one. Can you train yourself to recognize when you're dreaming? Can you work? Can you work, uh, then later train yourself to recognize that not only are you dreaming, but you can control that dream. And then later, the further development is uh, is to recognize that you were dreaming and control it enough to come out of it. So that's the way that I would do with the dreams. Now, the Buddha was not big on dream interpretation. The way he talked about dreams was smoldering, uh, the burning by day and smoldering by night. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasas even said that most of the de- uh, the demons or most of the problems that we have is that smoke at night. That we're more miserable at night because we're busy and not thinking about our problems during the day. We're too busy doing what we're told to do. But at night laying in bed, we're not doing what we were told to do. And so what do we do? We think about what we're told to do. (laughs) (laughs) That there's not much difference between daydreams and night dreams. That in fact, uh, we can think of it as we have daymares and nightmares. (laughs) But the daymares, we're not paying so much attention to uh, that that we're living out a nightmare. We're thinking in the daytime that we can fix it. Somehow at night, we're stuck with it. We're in a nightmare. Okay, can you wake up during your nightmare and say, wait a minute, this is just a nightmare. That's all it is. Can you start to change it so that it's not a nightmare anymore, that it's a pony or something? And then we can wake up fully. Okay, so this is the way that you can handle dreaming, knowing that it all is going towards wakefulness to be here now so that we can practice uh, Anapanasati throughout the night and just lay there and enjoy the heck out of how nice this bed is. One of the things that I was experimenting with just last night was the amazing feeling of being hot and freezing cold at the same time. (laughs) Shivering with cold and pulling that big heavy blanket over me in the middle of the tropics. <laughs> Shivering with cold while I'm hot. <laughs> wow. Because these are all just feelings. And we could just lay there and just enjoy the fact that all of these feelings are there available and we can experience them as just um just this is what's happening. Isn't that marvelous? Okay. Like opening the sense gates too. The freedom to open up. Mm-hmm. So getting back to the issue of Pitti Sukha, uh, Tyler, do you see the connection uh, between the two? That we build Sukha 
in order to get the pity. Just like the the uh, uh, the professional sportsman had to do all of that training so that he could run down the field and and uh, make that touchdown. Right. So the suka is the training for the pity and it's going to peak out. And we're going to really, really pay attention to it of how wonderful and, and marvelous that we can feel and then recognize that even that's more work than I want to put in. <laughs> I'm getting really lazy here, folks. <laughs> that even feeling wonderful and as a champion is too much work. <laughs> And I'm saying it in a funny way that you can get it, but Bikubu, but this is exactly what Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is saying, that pity is too much work. <laughs> it isn't so marvelous, but it's a lot of work, and we can just sort of settle down from that. But we have to go through it. We can't just build up a little bit of sukha and be finished with it. No, we've got to go to the peak. We've got to get to that point of, oh, wow, this is so good. I couldn't believe how good this is. But then we recognize, oh, but I don't have to sustain that feeling. I can just come even mellow out from there. So is that is that feeling, it sounds like what, you know, like the Daniel Ingram and folks would call it, is that the arising and passing, the, the pity? I mean, in, in like the Ingram, that the, the map that I've heard like Daniel Ingram use, for example, he calls that arising. Everything <laughs> is arising and passing away. <laughs> Everything is not just the pity and the sukha, but also every thought that you have arises and passes away. Every breath that you take arises and passes away. Every um, itch on the body arises and passes away. Well, I think he just has his his, his particular map that he uses of, of stages of insight that's based on a, the the city maga. I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that. But I think they call it rising. Actually, it's also based upon the suttas. Oh, I, I see. Okay. But I think, okay. I think what he was referring to is what you're referring to is the, the pity, how the pity peaks at a certain point. And then, like, Could I, uh, maybe just offer, I feel like, a, like the feeling of pity is like, wow, I've won the universe. I recognize I am one with everything. Mm -hmm. It's an unsustainable feeling for most of the day or it's just too much effort to sustain you're like wow i'm gonna walk around telling everyone i'm jesus christ i'm not right. gonna do that <laughs> i am god but that feeling doesn't it's, like, it's a peak feeling but it doesn't last very long and yeah yeah that makes sense yeah that's, that's very clear thank you for that explanation that that mm -hmm. definitely makes a lot more clear for me and it is a skill developed, and in our society, we do it haphazardly. We think that if, oh, if I go make a touchdown, I'll feel that way. Well, guess what? After a lot of touchdowns, it's ordinary, and now you don't get that exhilaration after a touchdown. Now you've got to go do something really special in order to get that feeling. Well, here with Anapanasati, we're actually developing that feeling so that you really can feel good upon command. You don't have to go to a football game and run a touchdown in order to feel that good. You could just feel that good because you know how to do it.
But again, it's not going to last long. It's momentary. Or if you're well-developed, 10 minutes maybe at best. And so think about it like that then, that Anapanasati, actually the way that it's structured is an actual map of how to go into first jhana. Of waking up, looking at what the mind is doing, investigating the mind, step nine, gladdening the mind, step 10, developing pity and our sukha first, which would be steps um, uh, six, and then pity step five. Once we do those things and got the first jhana, what that means with that first jhana is the mind is fit for work. That's Bhikkhu Buddha Das's term for it. The first jhana is when the mind is fit for work. Well, guess what? Getting the mind fit for work was actually getting the mind fit for work. I know that that sounds duplicated, but think about it for just a minute. And that is, is that getting the mind fit for work is actually the mind fit for work. So as we get the mind fit for work, what that means is in the beginning, we pay very close attention to developing these various skills. We pay attention to the sukha. We pay attention to the pity. We pay attention to the hindrances to get rid of them. But then after we've got the first jhana, we're still going to pay attention to what's happening. But right now, what's happening is first jhana. So now we're going to watch the arising and the passing away of the pity. We're going to watch the arising and the passing away of the sukha. We're going to watch the arising and the passing away of these thoughts and the being able to sustain it. So first jhana's factors is what we pay attention to in first jhana. Especially most importantly, keeping the mind applied to the wholesome. Apply and sustain, apply and sustain and sustain and sustain to get. This is the hard core training of first jhana is to be able to get into it and keep it and keep it and keep it and keep it, keep it going. Okay. And how we do that is by applying the mind over and over again to being able to sustain these wholesome thoughts. And as we do that, the pity builds. Once the pity comes to a certain point, now it's overwhelming to the point we don't have to think about developing it anymore. We really, it's almost like, uh, you know, on an aircraft carrier, they have um, either electromagnetic or steam operated catapults. And that, and that they will take that, that wire that they put behind the plane's wheels and as the plane itself is taking off, they'll pull that steam catapult and throw that airplane right out into the air, right? The same thing happens when they actually land on an aircraft carrier is that catapult then will will slow the plane down because it, the plane actually needs a much longer runway than they can build for a ship. So they've got to find a mechanical way of slowing that plane down. So there's a steam catapult. All right. Here's the analogy then that we're using is, is that our applied and sustained thoughts are like the catapult that gets us airborne. Once we're airborne, in other words, once we're in that state of pity, we want to work with just that 
and do not work with the catapult anymore, not working with the applied and sustained thoughts. We're just experiencing how marvelous this experience is. Identifying with the superego, as it were. Well, no, actually, uh, we've shut the uh, we've we've not um, just shut that super ego up. We've stuffed it into a box <laughs> because the super ego is, in fact, all of those unwholesome thoughts, thoughts of rules, thoughts of this should happen, thoughts of um, that, our, our attachments to rights, rules, and rituals. The super ego is, in fact, the unwholesome thoughts that we should suppress. Gotcha, gotcha. And have wholesome thoughts of nurturing instead. So once we've gotten the thoughts so nurturing that we're just literally flying with it, now we can even stop the nurturing thoughts and just fly. For a while. But just like every aircraft carriers, uh, airplanes, they got to land again. You can't stay airborne forever. That pity is going to milk back into just suka. Can you have a, a safe landing or are you going to crash land? Because that's what happens with most beginners. When they get into second jhana, they crash right back into unwholesome states. And then they long for that state of uh, pity and they don't have it anymore because they crash landed. So that's the way of looking is how can we take off using that steam catapult, and then when we land again, use those wholesome thoughts, the steam catapult to land, which means we have to go back into first jhana, that the, the landing point for second jhana is first jhana. The landing place for third jhana is first jhana. The landing place for fourth jhana is first jhana. That in fact, we can say that first jhana is the middle path. Now, I know that that's a bit hard for a lot of people to understand because they think that the middle, the middle path is kind of an ordinary, just kind of an in-between state. But no, if you think about it, with the way that we talk about it, that the, fourth, the first jhana is a state that is free from hindrances. And when we're not in the first jhana, that means that we are in a state of hindrances. Okay, so we take that to the old sutta talking about the distinction is, uh, for the middle path, is sensual pleasure versus self-flagellation. Okay, so he practiced that self-flagellation stuff. I mean, he, they, he was known as the starving Buddha. He starved himself, he flagellated himself, he almost killed himself, he was so good at it, right? But psychologically, isn't that exactly what we do in normal life, is that we're flagellating ourselves with these hindrances. Also, the marvelous state of the jhanas, we've talked about the second jhana, of how marvelous it is, but the middle point between the self-flagellation or the hindrances and the, uh, and the altitude of the second jhana is first jhana. That's the, that's the resting point. Get our minds into a state where we're satisfied. That we're just satisfied. Everything's it's okay. Yeah, I'm tired, but I'm satisfied. Yeah, I've got an itch, but I'm satisfied. Yeah, I woke it up in the middle of the night, but I'm satisfied. So this is the resting point. 
the, that resting point is that area of first jhana where we have wholesome thoughts and wholesome feelings and we can sustain that. Do you think it becomes a natural inclination to sustain first jhana because it's such a beautiful experience? You basically recognize the only thing worth using your mind for is to sustain first jhana and ascend from there? Well, we will find other things to do. I mean, you will put on your clothes, you will sit at your computer, you will be eating food and all this kind of stuff in an ordinary way. The question is, when you remember, or number, the first question is, do you remember and can you remember to come back to the present moment and come right back into the first jhana? Anytime you want to, anytime that you can think about it, you can do it. But that's not what Westerners want. What Westerners want is all the time. And here, what we're really practicing is anytime you can remember. Anytime. So uh, the uh, Sambhojana uh, mindfulness or uh, sati becomes unremitting. And what we mean by unremitting is it keeps coming back. It keeps coming back. It doesn't get lost. When we need sati, it will be there for us. We will. We have the confidence that when, when I need sati, it will be there. I can remember when I need to remember, but I don't have to go around remembering all the time because it's not worth it. I can enjoy myself without, you know, um, having to be in a state of constant practice. I can actually finally relax, completely relax, knowing that all the skills that I've developed will be there when I need them. But I don't have to keep getting them all the time. I could just relax instead, knowing that the skills will be there when I need them because I've developed them. So that's a way of also looking. That's that confidence. I don't have to be in first John all the time because I could get into it anytime I remember to. That's freedom for you, right? That's real freedom. It's a freedom that you can get yourself right back into a state of being anytime that you remember that you're out of you're out of kilter. Fine, kilter. <laughs> So, so like here's your like instruction of like for example, you know like like mindful. I use the word mindful in, in quotes, but like mindful eating or like focusing on your uh, feeling of your hand as it, as it grips the, the water bottle and then the liquid entering your mouth. Right. That that's more. My understanding from what you're saying is that that's actually more intended as a practice instruction for helping you enter first jhana, like helping you develop concentration and, and sati. But not necessarily something that you have to be doing for the rest of your life of like, you know, slowly like, <laughs> you know, taking the, the bottle to your lips and it's ah, not. But no, what's really going on then is that we're teaching it. Let me give you an example of that, that right now as my hands are sitting here, if I turn it over, I'm twiddling my thumb. <laughs> but I know that I'm twiddling my thumbs and I get great joy out of those thumbs loving and touching each other. I mean, they're having thumb sex right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so we begin to, and the same way with the cup, that when you take a drink, why not do it correctly and really enjoy it? 
have the mindfulness or remembering that I've got the cup in my hand and I'm about to have some um, uh, some water and ice and it feels so good. Okay, and then when we're drinking it, we can actually experience the water. How many times do you take a sip of water absentmindedly in the sense that you're not even thinking about it? You just take the sip of water while you are uh, in passing almost. So when we do it mindfully by picking up the glass, we know it. And so we actually take an instant to actually enjoy taking that sip of water, feeling it on the lips, experiencing the coolness as it goes down the throat. So this is how, uh, but when I set the cup down, I don't need to think about the cup anymore. I can go off and do something else, but I can do it with the same mindset. Like focus on the joy of each action rather than the specific action of each action. Well, exactly. Okay, so we uh, or we focus on the entire experience. Uh, not all at one time, but various little aspects of the experience. You can, in fact, you can experience the wetness, experience the coolness, experience it going down the throat, experience the cup on your lips and other things like that. But you don't do all of that all at the same time. But we do have a whole lot of mind moments and things are moving pretty fast. And so actually paying attention to how fast things are moving is also good. That's the arising and the passing away, going back to that part of the argument that everything is in the process of arising and passing away. Every thought that you have arises and passes away. Every sensation you have arises and passes away. That in fact, in order for this thought to arise, this thought has to pass away. Notice that. Notice that the new thought kicks out the old thought, that the old thought has been pushed out only to have a thought come in that is also pushed out by the next thought. And so we start paying attention to the the passing away rather than the arising that our society teaches us to look at something new, look at things that are beginning to happen. And the Buddhist practices say, no, we got to pay attention to both, both the hello and the goodbye. The arising and passing away, everything dies, everything passes away, only to be replaced by something new. And so that that process then is a cycle, the arising and the passing away. That when this when this dies, it's only being dying so that this can arise. That everything is in a cycle like that. And when we see this, we can detach from that any individual point on that cycle. This is the relinquishment or the letting go. If we can see that everything is going to die in your hands anyway, then why am I holding all of these dead birds? Why don't I just drop them? They're old, they're in the past. That that's another thing that we have a great deal of analogy for, that things that are in the past are buried in the past. And we bury things because they stink. And one of the things that we bury 
is our own theses, our sets. So we can think of that our past is actually nothing but a past, a shit pile that needs to be buried to stay out of it. And if we can remember that, then we can constantly see the arising and the passing away, all of the new shit that we're creating right now, the passing away of what's happening right now, and let it go onto that pile of shit called the past that we don't deal with anymore. Because we're busy watching what's happening now, the arising and passing away, the arising and passing away, it's constantly happening. A Nietzsche, what to Sankara, anything that can change will change and it'll change right now. Or as Murphy says, anything that can go wrong will go wrong and it will go wrong at the worst possible moment. Basically, what he was saying is it'll go wrong in stress. Anything that's under stress will not function the way that it functioned when it was not under stress. So. If you have a uh, new hotel that has a big computer system, the hotel has a thousand rooms and the computer system is rated for a thousand rooms. When is that computer system going to fail? Is it going to fail on opening night? Is it going to fail when the hotel is closed during COVID? Or is it going to fail when the hotel is full with a convention? going to fail when the, you need it most when it's full, when the hotel is full and you need that computer system the most. Guaranteed, that's when it's going to fail. Same thing with a rocket. When do rockets fail? They fail on takeoff. They don't just go up 100 miles and then explode. They explode when they're under most stress during takeoff. So if you recognize it like that, that the arising and the passing away actually has under, it's under conditions so that things pass away when they're being pushed out or when they're under stress. And begin to recognize that so that you can let it go just in time. So if your new employee comes in and says, I quit, how long are you, is it going to take you to get over it? Rather than recognizing, yeah, well, people quit. Things arise and they pass away. We could have expected that. I should have watched it coming. I should have known he, when he was walking in the door that he was here to quit. I had been walking, watching. So we we uh, we train ourselves to let go of things because things are going to fall apart. Everything is going to die. I don't know of anything that, that you have. This laptop right here is going to die. I know because I've watched about 20 of them die before, and I know that this one going to die too. They all die. But ain't me died, just the laptop. Unless I really need and want that laptop, and then when it dies, I die too. So when we get rich, get used to the fact that things are arising and passing away and arising and passing away, that's also the wheel of samsara. The arising and the passing away of all things. If we could see that cycle, we can jump out of that cycle. Hey, just because the laptop died didn't mean I died. But how many of you would you have a, a laptop to die? Have you ever had a laptop to die? Surely you have. How do you feel when the laptop dies? Like you're attacked, like you're dead. Like, oh, no, what am I going to do in my life now that I'm a laptop has died? For that. 
Okay. The answer to that is, is that if you know the laptop has died, then have a second one ready to go. Be prepared. You know, the one of the major problems with computers is loss of data. And backups. I mean, now people are beginning to understand that you have to have backups. If you're backup, that means you're prepared because you know that that hard drive is going to die. You don't know when, but you don't you need to keep it backed up because it might die at any moment. And if you know that you're ready and then your life is good. But if you say, oh, well, I've got a laptop and I've got a hard drive and everything is hunky dory and you're not planning on when things die, then you're going to be really in difficulty. You're going to be suffering. That hard drive died, my data died, therefore I died. Rather than the hard drive died, but the data's okay and so am I. <laughs> so this is one of the qualities of the arising and the passing away is being attuned to the fact that things do die. And that everything that we can become attached to, everything that's dear to us will bring us grief when it does die. When the teenage boy uh, throws a hissy fit, uh, screams in anger at his dad, his dad has the idea that, that he's lost his son, that things have died. Okay, and it's a great big surprise to him. Rather than recognizing, well, the kid's angry right now, but that will die too. So we can't just see things as permanent. Everything, once something happens, it's always going to be that way. If the stock market is going up, it'll always go up. If the stock market crashes, it'll stay crashed. This is the mentality that we have. The reality is the stock markets, they go up and they go down. Life goes up and down. Laptops work and then they don't. The in-breath comes and then the out-breath. Everything is on a cycle of life and death. And if we could see that cycle, we can get a great big kick out of it. Wow, look at that. He died. <laughs> Rather than being attached to it, and then when he died, oh, no, he died. Oh, I needed that. Okay, so... When we recognize that, that means that we can plan in advance that you're going to lose your girlfriend, you're going to lose your laptop, you're going to lose your car, you're going to lose your hair, you're going to lose your good health, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose it all. Everything's going to die away. Are you ready for that? It's going to happen anyway, whether you're ready or not. Knowing this helps us prepare. So when we do lose something that is dear to us, we don't have to grieve. We can say goodbye. I knew you were going to die on me, Granny. <laughs> I knew you were going to die. <laughs> I should have said goodbye. In fact, I did say goodbye because I knew you were going to die. And there you're dying. So bye-bye. <laughs> you're gone. <laughs> Because granny's going to die, whether I feel good or feel bad. And if I recognize that everything dies, everything falls away, then I can be ready for it so I can say goodbye. I can relinquish it. I can let it go. So this is what uh, the Buddha is really talking about with that arising and passing away to recognize that everything arises and everything passes away. 
And when we can see that with the little stuff, then we can begin to see it with the big stuff. And so we start watching even our own thoughts. There it was, and now it's gone. So that's what we mean by arising and passing away, because everything is going to pass away. Be ready to let it go. And one of the best ways of letting it go is by not ever attaching to it in the first place. Because if we've attached to it and we see it dying, now we've got to detach. And that goes along with the issue about um, wanting stuff that we don't have. And that is, is that if you want something that you do not have, the wanting of it means that you need it or that you're somehow deficient. Before you met it, before you saw it, you were whole. But now that you see it and you like it, you think you'll be better off with it. And therefore, you're not good enough right now. This is the issue of satisfaction. Can you be satisfied without it? And then we're okay. But if we really need it, now we've got to go work to get it. Now we've got to go be dissatisfied because we don't have it. We've got to do all the work to get it, which is dissatisfying, but we finally get it. Except that it doesn't last that long, that feeling of satisfaction with the new product that we've just got, because now we've got to keep it. If it was so valuable that I had to work so hard to get it, now I have to work really hard to keep it. I've got to clean this keyboard and clean the monitor and and do the backups and all of this kind of stuff to maintain this computer. I can't just let, let it sit there uh, year after year without doing anything. It's going to die on its own quickly that way. So I've got to maintain it. But even with all of that maintenance, whatever it is that I attach to, I'm going to lose it anyway. So I suffered before I got it. I suffered to keep it. And now I'm really suffering because I've lost it. If I recognize that cycle, then I can uh, do these things happily. I can let it go happily. The things that I are close to me and dear to me, I've got backup. Or I could do without it because I'm going to lose it anyway. And when you recognize that, then you can live a happy life because you know that you're going to lose everything, but it's not you that's lost. It's just whatever you were attaching to. But we often, when we attach to something, it's like my car or me. I am the car. I am this house. Or another way of saying it, when people buy a house and get a mortgage, they think that they own the house. Actually, the bank owns the house. All they own is a mortgage. But they think that they own the house. But the real reality is that the house owns them. I mean, if there's toilet in that house gets clogged up, who's responsible for fixing the toilet? Little old me. That house owns me. It orders me around. It says, you sweep my floor and you clean out my refrigerator and you fix my plumbing. <laughs> and when we see it like that, we can recognize, well, wait a minute. Maybe I don't need such a big house. Let me take a house is easy to take care of and easy to lose. Easy come, easy go. 
That's the way of, in fact, that's possibly the best way to understand this whole issue of arising and passing away. Easy come, easy go. Live your whole life like that. Easy come, easy go. Things are going to arise and are going to pass away. And if you get attached, you're going to feel bad. I see some, uh, let us say, wise nodding right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wise words, easy to nod to, for sure. Well, let's finish this talk. This has been a really good one. I've really enjoyed this. Do you guys either one of you have any parting questions? You, uh, I don't. Yeah, you answered all my questions and more, so I'm... I'm very, I'm very satisfied. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, and Tyler, it was a pleasure to meet you again tonight. Yeah, nice to meet you, Kevin. John yeah. Rata, thank you for the excellent chat and for answering our questions. Great. Well, since you guys are both satisfied with all of that soup and everything, I can put on some pity. Yoo-hoo! <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't last long. Now I'm just back at the soup again. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, this has been great. I'll see you later. Thank you uh, so much. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> I'm right up. See you, Kevin. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>